This week on Writers Inc. What happened with this last book was very unusual in that I, I, I had a novel I'd been working on that was not quite coming together and I had a series of distressing meetings with my editor uh, in her office in which she said basically, it's going to be great, rewrite it. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, you left the squad cast door open again. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I got to get a better lock on that thing. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're joined by a third member of the Writer's Inc. family today. Zach Bohanna, what's up, Zach? Thank you to the two people on the survey who said they wanted me on more that apparently was enough to get me on here so what's up yeah well, what are you doing here man tell us a little bit about that uh, you tell me what i'm doing here i don't know no, no we just uh yeah i'm i i guess i'm gonna be uh just joining the show every week now instead of just once a month um, and it's something that three of us talked about and, uh, yeah, so I'm here, this would be my, and I should be here every week now. So yeah, that's, that's the deal. Awesome. Simple. We're excited to have you. So welcome. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. Drop, <laughs> dropping threats already. Yeah. I'm going to be here every week. <laughs> <laughs> then what'll happen is I'll miss next week. Yeah. I'm like, sorry guys, something came up. So today's my I, wife's birthday. So if I'm not missing for that, then I should be. Oh, here. happy birthday to Kat. Oh, happy yeah. birthday. Yeah, 30 35 today Woo. oh man right in the prime she was freaking out she's prime well <laughs> this is tough because my, my wife just had her birthday on um january 26th and and like you can't do anything you know like i i would have gone out to dinner like i would have put the mask on gone oh, to, we're going to dinner are you like yes yeah, she oh, won't absolutely. do that like she doesn't like if yeah. she goes to she goes to walmart and goes shopping like she strips off her clothes when she gets into the house and like she takes a silkwood shower um you know like she's scared to death of this thing so there's no way yeah. she would have fun going out to dinner somewhere and, and i get that so we we ended up ordering food and yeah i told her she could pick whatever restaurant she wanted um me being an aspie like i've got my go-to's and like buffalo wild wings is my absolute favorite and she's like and you know i expected her to pick something fancy but she's like no i know you like buffalo wild wings so we'll get that and so yeah we're doing uh, t tonight we're doing a uh, dinner with like the three of us of my daughter too. And then tomorrow we're going, just me and her going to lunch while my daughter's at school. So, um, okay. and we've been going, I mean, we've been going to restaurants and stuff sparingly, but she's also vaccinated. So she's like, oh. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's so, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been able to get it yet. She's technically a healthcare worker. So she was able to get it. So. Oh, yeah. gotcha. So yeah. yeah, my my sister, she got hers. She's gotten both of them, I think at this point. Um, She, she runs a hospital down in Florida. Um, but yes, yeah, so like the rest of her family hasn't. So same kind of deal as yours. Um, yeah, pe nice. Pe yeah. People are slowly trickling in. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. So, so uh, <laughs> JD, this is a little freaky, but uh, my wife's birthday is the exact same day as your wife's birthday. Really? Yeah. Well, you're you in said, Ohio, so I know she's not bouncing back and forth. So it's got to be a different person. You did say January 26th, right? Yeah, I'd have to check my my phone just to make sure it reminds me. But I, well, yeah, because yeah, I thought you said twenty seventh a minute ago. <laughs> no, 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 twenty twenty six. Well, let's let's totally change the subject so you don't get in trouble. Uh, what's yeah. up with Caller's Game? How, how'd that launch go? It went well. The, the featured new release, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect because I, the book launched at uh, $9.97, you know, so from a book bug feature release, you know, it's, it's not a bargain. Um, so I wasn't sure what that was going to do, but it, it's been bouncing all over the place, anywhere from around, I think, I think it peaked out at like around 350 or 400 in the, the Kindle store. Um, and it's gone all the way up to like 6,000 and it's kind of been floating around in that range. Um, the daily Kindle Unlimited reads have been insane and anywhere from 30 to 60,000 page reads a day, which is, is nice. pretty strong. Um, we've got a television ad that you know was supposed to start on launch date, but we, we got a little bit delayed there because it, it took longer in production than we thought it would. So it actually started last night. I got the email from the company at like around nine o'clock last night. 
um, strictly online, um, which which I like because you can't. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any of these streaming services that have commercials, but you can't fast forward. Um, yeah. You know, so you're stuck watching. You know, so like Hulu and you know and, any of those those different things, and they've they've got a, a staple of them. Um, and it's it's insane how how well they can target their their ads now. Um, you know, it's not like in the old days where they just threw it up in the middle of Criminal Minds and you know you picked a, a state or whatever. Um, they they can drill all the way down to the individual users. Um, so you know, like they they've got book lovers, they've got mystery lovers, they've got thriller lovers. They can go down to the, that. They can go down to age, male, female. Um, you know, so I'm really interested to see the stats there. But uh, unfortunately, it just it started last night, so there's there's no real you know feedback there's nothing you know, for me to, to really be able to see at this point um hopefully by next week i'll have some kind of info on that um it, it's pricey it's definitely not something you know many authors can do um but you know i, I think if you can afford it if if, if it works out i, I think it's going to be one of my go-tos moving forward i I've pulled back almost completely this th- for this launch on facebook and amazon um simply because i want to see how well this works all by itself and if i've got all these different things going on it's it's you know much more difficult to measure uh that was um, so. my next question so you don't have a unique link you're just you're comparing to baseline yeah exactly okay. um they put a pixel on my website so I, they're they're using that to a certain extent um they're basically looking at you know who's visiting my website and then multiplying that out so if they see women 45 and over hitting my website you know they're using that as, as part of their demographics that they're going out to so the, the tech behind it is, is very cool very smart um very similar to what you know what they do at facebook you know when you drill down to the, the different options that you've got there just on, on, a, on a television scale excellent that's cool. That's we have to keep I'll be, us up to I'll date be definitely that. interested to hear the results on that because, like, you, like that's um, that's an advertising avenue that people I never hear anyone talk about, and for obvious reasons, like you said, because it's I'm sure it's pricey. But I mean, there's a lot of authors out there who I'm sure can't not maybe not a lot, but there are some who I'm sure would be interested and could swing that. So it'd be really interesting to hear what your results are. That's cool. Yeah. It might, might be a complete flop or it might, might work. We'll hopefully know in a week or so. I've been trying a lot of things this week. I tried out, um, I, I don't, did you listen to, um, to Joanna Penn, she, her, her artificial intelligence episode that she had? Um, yes. she, she had somebody on who had some software that was designed around GP3 specifically for writers. Uh, and she's got a link up on her website, but I went ahead and tried it because I just wanted to see what would happen. Um, so essentially you can go in there and it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, you, you can plug in your characters, you can plug in your setting, you can feed information into this, this machine. It, you know, the more you give it, the better. Um, and in my case, I just plugged in a couple of those variables and I just took a big chunk of text of, you know, 1200, 1300 words or so and dropped it in there. Um, and then you just hit one button and, and the computer will sit there and write your next sentence, your next paragraph. You can tell it basically how much you want. Um, now I was very impressed as far as what it was capable of doing because the sentence structure that came out like it matched mine so it matched my voice my cadence the word choices things like that um, and knew specifically who the characters were and and the scene that it that actually wrote or that it continued uh, it, it actually did kind of make sense um, you know so it's not just grasping at the dark um, but that being said like I, I you know, I tried it. Like you can hit that, that button almost like a refresh. So like, it'll drop a paragraph of text in there. And if you don't like it, you can do it again and you can do it again and you can do it again. And it's very similar to like, if I'm sitting there writing on my own, you know, I, I've got that text that's already done in front of me and I got to write that next paragraph and I'll write one and I'll delete it. And I'll write another one and I'll delete it. The difference is it's coming out of my brain and I, and I know where the story is going. I know specifically what it needs to do in order to keep that story moving forward. The computer doesn't know that. And that's where the disconnect seemed to be. Um, so I was hoping that would, you know, maybe provide some writing prompts or something that might spark a little imagination on my side, but it honestly just took me off in such a completely different direction, um, that it, it wasn't very useful to me as, as a tool. Um, so I think unless somebody actually wanted to sit there and have the computer write the entire story for them, you know, like this paragraph works, let's move on to the next one and then just let it keep going and going. Um, I don't think it's going to work, but you know, it, it scared me, you know, to a, a large extent. I mean, it's, considering what it was capable of doing, you know, now, you know, I, I hate to think about where it's going to be in a, in a few years, you know, the, the more information you feed into it, um, the more accurate I think it's going to get. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could easily see a situation where you, you throw in some, a bullet point outline and it cranks out a draft. <laughs> like yeah, it, or, you know, like it maps those bullet points across the, the novel and, and then there you go. You got a draft. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, match, matching my voice and, and cadence and writing structure, that, that was pretty big. 
Um, you know, if you think about like Lee Child right now, like he, he's essentially retired. He's got his brother out there writing the, the Jack Reacher books. Uh, if you've read the latest Jack Reacher book, it's good, but you can tell that it wasn't written by Lee Child. If they were to take that text and drop it in here or use this in some way, it could basically flag, you know, with like, this isn't a sentence that Lee would say, you know, he would use this number of syllables or these words or whatever, but it, it, it's obviously capable of reverse engineering that. And I don't think anybody's actually done that yet, uh, but I, I could see that kind of thing happening. Um, so we'll see where the, where the tech goes. I, what, what really has me worried is, is I, I can see it just flooding the system. I could see this, you know, a bot basically starting to write books and, you know, churn out a book every five, 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, you know, these are all hitting Amazon and, you know, like if people think the market's crowded now, wait, wait until that happens. And, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just as easily going to be able to create covers that are, you know, intriguing enough for people to click on and download. And it's going to clog up Kindle Unlimited. It's, it's going to mush up the whole system. So I think the, the powers that be need to keep a real close eye on this and you know we're going to need some gatekeepers i think down the road you're you're triggering our audience from the career author from when we used to talk about this i can see <laughs> <Jay's> face <laughs> that was like our most controversial episode <laughs> oh man all but right, hey, it's a reality that we're probably all gonna have to deal with because it's coming so yeah. it is yeah i'm yeah. not in denial i just no, um, absolutely not, not optimistic about it yeah no i i honestly i just try to stay on top of whatever is new and yeah. try to figure out how it's going to fit into you know my little world and you know whether it does or it doesn't um you know speaking of that I, I, are you guys registered for clubhouse or have you tried clubhouse yet i don't have a an apple mm. oh okay. i haven't yet uh-uh yeah, so essentially, it's um, it's weird. It, it's I, I've, yeah. First of all, if if you're an author, you know, and you're out there, just go ahead and just register, get your username. Um, you know, like I, anytime there's a new platform, you know, whether it was TikTok or Snapchat or, or this one or whatever, if I hear about a new platform, I always go out there and get JD Barker, um, just to make sure nobody else gets it because you don't want to have some long handle if the the platform actually takes off. Um, but it's interesting because it's it's like sitting in a room, you know, similar to like sitting in on a podcast, but you can actually weigh in because it's live. Um, so you've got, you know, one person is essentially broadcasting audio or a panel or whatever it might be. And then, you know, you could raise your hand and you can join that conversation in, in real time, um, strictly audio. And I, I, I don't know if that's something that's going to take off or, or not. Um, it's definitely a, a unique idea. It's slightly different um, from some of the other things coming out. So so who knows? But, you know, at the very least, you get out there and just you know, get your username before somebody else gets it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I heard them talking about that on Joe Rogan's podcast. <laughs> it, yeah. It's it definitely it definitely it's it's definitely a unique idea. So um, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Cool. Well, why don't we get into some housekeeping and then we'll get to our guests for today. So we want to give a shout out to Kobo Writing Life, our wonderful sponsors. Uh, they give you the tools to publish your books in any country and set your price, and you get to keep all your rights. We love the people at Kobo. Tara and her team are wonderful. So if you are publishing wide, make sure you go to KoboWritingLife.com and check them out. Link will be in the show notes. We want to give a nice shout out too to two new patrons, one a returning patron, but thank you to Pilar Orti and Leanne Beckett. Uh, we really appreciate your patronage and uh, that is over at Patreon.com slash Writers Inc. Podcast. And uh, finally, we uh, closed the poll, and uh, we're probably going to circle back around a little bit later and talk about uh, some of the insights we gained about all of you folks from the poll, from the survey that we did. And the random winner is Edward Giordano. So, Edward, uh, you're hearing your name here on the podcast. Congratulations. You've won a one-on-one -on -one with J.D. Barker. So if you go to the uh, website, use the contact form, and hit us up, and we will uh, get you connected with J.D. So congrats. Right. So uh, that brings us to the guest. Who do we have on today, JD? I'm going to butcher this name, and I probably should have figured out how to pronounce it, but Jean Hanif Kurlitz. Um, I, I'm going to call her Jean from now forward for the rest <laughs> of my life because that, that's way easier. Um, but she, she's a, you know, she's most known, I think, right now for writing You Should Have Known, which is the basis of the uh, the undoing, the, the, the show on HBO, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, but she's got a couple other books out there, and, and they've been adapted. Um, the Admission, I, I caught that um, as a film the other day, um, which is great with Tina Fey. Um, and she's got a new book coming out called The Plot. Um, fascinating woman to talk to. And she's also running something called Book the Writer out of New York, um, which is a, a really cool program. Um, so I'm hoping she goes into that a little bit as well. Excellent. Let's get into it. What do you say? All right. Here she is, Jean. So my question is, will you edit my son's college essay for him? I won't <laughs> say no. Um, the only... Uh, the, 
uh, my rule has always been my friends, kids, or my kids' friends. Um, and then people who come through this filthy lucre arrangement <laughs> that I have with um, a very, very good college counselor. But if you make a really good case for it, um, yes. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute. Aren't you a writer? Aren't you there to help him? I, I am. And I'm, 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 it's only a joke because uh, he's a senior right but now. He's already going to Harvard, right? Yeah he's, yeah. he's already, he's been accepted. There's some other acceptance uh, letters rolling in. And so, but I, I, it was, it was just really interesting to me that, um, this aspect of your life, um, especially around writing admission and, and, and your work there. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that? Absolutely. Um, I love talking about it because, you know, I think so many of us are obsessed with this thing, this college admissions thing. Um, but it, it gets a little embarrassing to be obsessed with it after one's own time at bat has come and gone. Um, and yet I found a way to kind of parlay my fascination into a really, uh, wonderful writing project. And what happened was I, I first, you know, I was a faculty wife at Princeton. I am a faculty wife at Princeton. I'm sorry, I should say spouse, faculty spouse. Um, and a man named Fred Hargadon was the admission direct, dean of admissions there for many years. And I went to him and I said, you know, I, I really want to, I don't want to be an admissions officer, but I'm just fascinated and I'd like to come work for you. And he said, great idea. And then he never called me back. Um, and then um, the next uh, Dean of Admissions, I tried again with her and she hired me. Uh, I think she regretted that eventually, but um, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, I was very honest and upfront with her. I said, I'm, I want to write a novel about Ivy League admissions and will you hire me? And, and she said, yes. So, I mean, I, I was not an admissions officer. I was a reader. We were um, referred to as the cavalry. Um, they got called in to help process many, many, many thousands of applications. We were trained by admissions officer. We, we reported to them. We basically did, we took, the, we took the applications home. We read everything, we evaluated them. And, um, and then we gave our recommendation and that was the end of it. I was not allowed to be part of deliberations, although I asked. Um, and then uh, after two years, after the dean of admissions read uh, the novel that I've written, I was not, I was not rehired. So <laughs> there you go. But I still love to. Um, I really love this moment in life, the, this kind of turning point where kids leave home. I'm sort of fascinated by it, fixated on it. It comes up in my books over and over again. And, um, and then at a party, I met a woman who was a college counselor, and she said, "Would you like to work for me?" And it's just been a perfect arrangement because uh, um, I'm just working on the essays. I'm, I'm, I don't meet the kids. I don't advise them on where to apply. It's, it's all on paper. It's just perfect for me. That's fascinating. And I know yeah. that you wrote in, in, a, in a post one time that you really recommend kids take a year or two off between high school and college. I do. Yeah, I do. Why well, is that? It all came up when the, uh, the Varsity Blues thing happened. And um, I... At the time that admission came out, people were asking me a lot of questions about, you know, well, what do you think is the problem with the, the broken system? You know, the system is not broken. System is not broken. The system has been evolving since it, since it came into being. And, you know, anybody who wants to see how it's evolved should go straight to that, uh, that book that I cited, The Chosen, not the Chaim Potok uh, novel, but... Um, uh, Jerome Carabell, I believe is the author's name. And he did a hundred year study of Harvard, Yale and Princeton admissions. And it's really like reading the story of America because it's about how this weird thing has, has swung back and forth um, among all of the societal um, pressures that have arisen along the way. And if you, you know, if you think back to the beginning of the 20th century, when all you had to do to go to Harvard was basically get signed up by your parents um, to where we are now, where even people whose families have attended these schools for generations can't get in. Um, and that's just, that's just from zero to, from alpha to omega without all of the adjustments that have been made along the way. It's just fascinating. So system is not broken, um, but it keeps adjusting to society, which also keeps adjusting. And is it fair? What's fair? You know, yeah. <laughs> what's fair in the world? 
that. So, so, you know, at that time that admission was published, um, I did think very long and hard about how to respond to that question. And, and, uh, the, the answer that I came up with, believe it or not, came from Mormon culture. <laughs> I'm not a Mormon, I'm a Jewish atheist, but I'm fascinated by Mormon history. And I'm, I think the, uh, the ritual of leaving home and leaving your country when you're 18 years old, uh, you know, they got it right. They did, there was something right about that. Those kids, when they come back from Timbuktu or wherever they've been sent, they're ready to go to college. They're ready to learn and study. And, you know, they've gotten something out of their system. And I think that, that the two years, having those two years away from, you know, stepping off the conveyor belt is just, would serve the college admissions ritual very well. Because kids are burned out by that time. They don't know who they are. Um, they, they should go to work, they should go to the army, they should go on a mission, they should go on the road, they should volunteer, they should write a novel, they should, maybe they need to play video games for two years and then they're ready, who knows? But uh, don't tell my son is. that. Oh yeah, well, um, but yeah, so that, that was my answer. Yeah. <laughs> and then bizarrely, um, a couple weeks ago, I interviewed a whole bunch of students from my college and one of the kids that I liked the best was a kid who told me somewhat haltingly, she said, well, actually I'm, I'm two years, I graduated from high school two years ago. I've been working in a restaurant and now I'm ready. And I'm like, there you are. You're, 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 you're the perfect illustration of my, uh, of my, uh, my theory. <laughs> and she is, she was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, wonderful. How did the, the story in the novel admission go from the page to the screen? Um, you know, I, I was, as with you should have known in the undoing, I was not involved in the writing. Um, it was turned into, um, I mean, it, it was turned over to a wonderful writer named Karen Croner. And we met and we had lunch together. It was very, uh, um, it was like we were dating, but we already had a child. <laughs> um, I really, really liked her and I really trusted her. And um, and even so, the first time I read that script, I, I really had to like take smelling salts. It was it was uh, really uh, a, a kind of horrendous <laughs> thing where you, you see your characters are not your own anymore. And um, I understood that it was necessary to take an activity that was essentially deeply uncinematic, like sitting at a desk and reading an application is, you know, it's not, who wants to watch that? Um, I realized that she had to do something with that. She had to make it cinematic. I realized that after Tina Fey became involved, it had to skew a little more towards comedy. Um, but I was not prepared for the big twist of the novel, which takes place you know, really as the third act of the novel begins, that got moved very close up to the beginning. And uh, I just, I was just, <laughs> I was really horrified. But um, I think as a film, it worked. And uh, I got over my initial response and uh, Karen and I are still good friends. And, you know, it's a very sweet movie. And if I knew nothing about the origins of the movie, I, I, it would probably be a favorite of mine. I think it's adorable. Um, but it, it took a little while to get past it. I'm glad I went through that, though, because, you know, after that, the undoing was just was nothing. Just, no problem at all. Just whatever you want to do is fine. So well, I got it out of my system. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that. And, and I think it's a for a lot of writers, it's just a it's such an interesting idea of how do you translate that, um, the medium? I mean, it's a very different medium. A novel is very different than a television series or a movie. And I was uh, listening to the um, conversation you had with Sarah Silverman and you, and she was asking you about the characterization on The Undoing and uh, how that was different from You Should Have Known in regards to sort of the, the, the cultural references and things with the characters. And you basically said, well, I know that, you know, my, my involvement ends at the, at the back cover. And yeah. it sounded like you you had really sort of accepted that and, and we're, we're totally fine with it. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I, would I have been able to, to do that with the second book if, if it hadn't happened with the first one? Probably not. I'd probably be having all of those, you know, fainting couch papers, uh, smelling salts responses now. But uh, so I'm glad I, I I'm glad I got that out of my system. But I also I mean, as I said to her, I believe I believe in the transmogrification of stories. I, I mean, look, I just finished reading this novel for the book group we're doing tonight. What is this novel if not for um, the appropriation of a story that has been around in this case for thousands of years and taking it in a different direction, adding new characters, making a work of art out of something that has always existed um, that is a beautiful thing. That is something that I've benefited from as a reader and a viewer. And for me to say, oh, no, no, you know, you cannot take my precious immortal words and my, you know, my glorious work of fiction and, uh, and, and change it in any way. It's, it's just not fair. It'd be not fair to do that. Did you have so, yeah. any sit downs with David E. Kelly in, in the same manner or was it completely hands off? Not really. I mean, we had um, we had some lovely emails. I mean, we're we're still in contact, but you know, what am I going to say? It's David E. Kelly. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it was a, like a first time writer, and he sincerely had come to me with, you know, advice or insight, I, I might have been freer with my advice and insight. But you know, what am I going to say to him? <laughs> He's David E. Kelly. You know, he can. I, I've been watching his work for years, and it just would have been incredibly presumptuous. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. You have to trust him, right? You know, whether, if you don't trust him, don't take the money, you know? <laughs> you don't have, nobody made me sell it. There have been plenty of writers who said no. Um, I once knew, I once heard this, I won't name the writer, but a writer who was just such, basically they ran in, in fear and horror from their first uh you know, contact with him, like, it's not worth it. <laughs> um, you know, that's, I, I guess I respect that, but that, that wasn't me. So yeah, I, I've been very lucky, very lucky. You know, one of my favorite novels that I've ever read in my life was a, um, a, a novel from the 1970s called Sheila Levine is De Dead and Living in New York. It's still one of the funniest books I've ever read. It was adapted into a film by its author um, who was a screenwriter. I mean, she, she was like a TV screenwriter and it was still one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with the book. I mean, it was kind of like a, a case study in, in, in how not to do it. Um, and the fact that it was adapted by its author was just endlessly baffling to me. You seem so. to have a pretty balanced perspective though. Can you talk a little bit about uh, The Dead 1904 and, and your adaptation? Sure. Well, it's worth noting that the person whose work we were adapting was dead. So uh, <laughs> was dead and beyond the reach of even his uh, infamously ferocious uh, grandson, who was his uh, literary executor, who tormented, uh, has tormented uh, people wanting to adapt and do anything with Joyce's work for decades. We were just out of that. So um but, you know, we, we didn't go into that project with any intention but to glorify and celebrate the piece. Um, I'm not a Joyce scholar. I'm very far from a Joyce scholar, uh, but my husband is very knowledgeable about Joyce. So between the two of us, we were able to make this thing, this very beautiful thing. Um, the idea was, those of your listeners who know the dead know, um, this is a probably the most famous short story in all of English slash Irish literature. And it is set on the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, January 6, 1904, and in, and in Dublin at a party. And the party is a, a feast, of, an annual Feast of the Epiphany party at the home of two elderly sisters who are musicians and music teachers. And it is attended by many of their students and longtime friends, all of whom are musically minded. So it's a, a an Edwardian party in Dublin um, 
with lots of music and conversation. And the joke about the, the dead is that nothing happens, but everything happens. Yeah. So throughout the course of the evening, there are conversations about religion and politics and uh, history and the culture and the sort of brewing um, political uh, uprisings that are coming. And then it all ends in, back in the hotel room of the, the this husband and wife who we've been following through the party. At which time she, the wife tells her husband something that she's never told him and his whole world goes up. You know, it, in, in modern parlance, we would say, you know, she rocks his world. And he literally ends this evening uh, staring out the window into the snow, to the blizzard, into the snow, because uh, snow is general all over Ireland that night. Um, just basically lost in his own life. So, you know, he's been a smug kind of jerk all night, this guy. And by the end of the evening, he's lost. He's lost in his own life. He doesn't know, he realizes he doesn't know the woman that he's married to at all. So it's a, you know, it, it's a beautiful, somewhat quiet, joyful, tragic story. Um, and the innovation was to make it an immersive theater piece in which the um, the audience members were attending the party. They were drinking with the actors. They were eating with the actors. We recreated the famous meal in the middle of the show, the story. And um, at the end of the night, we followed them upstairs into the bedroom. <laughs> and, um, and then this happens. And, and getting the snow right was very, very difficult. It took three years to get it right, but we, we got it right. And it, you know, it was quite a magical experience. In terms of the adaptation, you know, the, the goal was to stay as close as possible to the um, story as we could, but uh, my husband also brought in a great deal of um, interpretive uh, context, I would say having to do with the Irish famine. Um, and that was very meaningful for, I think for, um, for him and for many of the people who attended who knew this story very well. So whether it's for the dead or for, for any of your works, what is your creative process like? Do you, do you have a writing spot, a writing time, um, a, a certain method? It really depends on where I am in the book and or not in the book because there have always been these big gaps between books for me. And I've, it's taken a long time to sort of recognize that those are part of the process, the gaps. Um, guilt sets in about six months after I finish. So, um, so there's that, but... Um, what happened with this last book was very unusual in that I, I, I had a novel I'd been working on that was not quite coming together. And I had a series of distressing meetings with my editor uh, in her office in which she said, basically, it's gonna be great, rewrite it. And uh, I was in so much kind of despair over, uh, I believe the second one of these meetings that I blurted out, but I have another idea. And then I told her this idea, which I literally had sort of come to me in the days before, um, probably out of pure frustration. And we all recognized that it was a good idea. I mean, we all knew what it was. And so we came up with the idea to for me to set aside the big book that wasn't working, write this new book, and then return to the other book afterwards, which is what has just happened. So my um, my pandemic novel, which was written in an absurdly short time, but very, very intense uh, productive period, uh, starting about a year ago, uh, is coming out in May. And uh, we're all really happy with it. And now I've got to get myself back to the other book and, and make that right. Well, let's talk about that book that's coming out in May. I'm, I'm so intrigued. It's called The Plot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, I think it's about the publishing industry. Can you, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that? That's right in your sweet spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's about a, a writer who I, um, I have no hesitation in referring to as a failed writer. Um, I, I feel like we are all failed writers, no matter where we are. Um, I certainly feel like a failed writer. It's hard to shake uh, the experiences from the beginning of your career. They're, you know, it's a very volatile industry as you're aware and you're never safe. You're never safe. You should never ever commit the hubris of thinking that you're safe and that whatever you, you know, you're Picasso in the cafe making a squiggle on the, 
on the uh, your napkin and assuming that somebody will, you know, put that in a museum, that will never ever happen to you. You're only as good as whatever you're writing at the moment. Um, at least that is my experience. So um, it, it's about this writer who really has uh, fallen pretty far and he can't write anymore. I don't use the word writer's block because I don't really think it exists. I think you're just, you're either writing or you're not writing. Um, but he he's teaching in a pretty, pretty low level, <laughs> low residency MFA program. Uh, his students are, are not very good. Um, but he's not very good and it's all very depressing. And then into his, uh, into his class walks this absolute piece of shit, arrogant piece of shit, who uh, is just that, that student that you just do not wanna see walking into your class. He's talented, but he's unbelievably arrogant. And he basically says, I don't need you. I don't need this because the book that I'm working on is foolproof. And of course that's, an absurd thing to say, but then in a private conference, the student actually tells the story of what he's writing and the protagonist realizes that he's absolutely right, that, that this plot is brilliant and foolproof. And he's, you know, consumed by envy, but what are you going to do about it? You know, there are rules about these things. Um, a few years later, he discovers that uh, the student has, has died. Uh, unexpectedly, and not long after this meeting took place. Obviously, the book has not been written, let alone sold, let alone published. Um, the teacher has barely seen any pages of it. I mean, he remembers a, a, a short excerpt of it, but it's not like there is text anywhere to steal, to appropriate. So he struggles with the idea briefly, but he's a writer and he knows what this is. And he feels already an obligation to this incredible story. So he writes his own book. And that's really uh, where things begin to go very wrong. <laughs> so that's, um, you know, all of the all of the publishing goodies and the magic fairy publishing uh, dust that uh, eluded him in his career so far, he now gets and all of the wonderful things that the student predicted would happen to his novel um, do happen. Wow. Yeah. Can't wait for that one. Uh, you, you talked about, you know, this idea that uh, you're never safe. So what can you as the writer do to sort of sleep at night, knowing that there's things that are out of your control and, and there's fate or, or kismet or whatever you want to call it. But what, what can you do about it? In a weird way, you can do the same thing that you that was always the only thing you can do. You can do your work, you know, you, all you can control is your work. You can't control, you know, whether some Harry Potter equivalent is gonna come out tomorrow and change the whole landscape of the publishing world. You can't control what your, your senior in high school kid is gonna wanna read and his friends are gonna wanna read. You can't control, you know, the next, superhero that's gonna create an appetite for more superhero. You can't control anything except how good your book is to the extent that you can even control that. So, you know, be open, be grateful, be uh, celebratory of your friends' accomplishments, be generous towards other writers, you know, try not to, try not to cast, you know, um, bad spells, <laughs> sorry, I'm under the influence of Cersei here because I've just finished reading the book. Um, you know, try not to make the world a worse place for writers. That sounds terrible, but all you can do is your own work. Once once that book is, is out of your hands, um, are, are there things that, that you can do to, to maybe help it on, on its way? Like podcast interviews or, or marketing techniques or things that are both comfortable for you and effective? Well, I, I'm thrilled that anybody's asking me to do anything because, uh, you know, my last novel came out and there was just complete silence. So I, I consider that sort of the norm that anybody wants to talk to me about anything is, you know, delightful. And I, I realize that a lot of that uh, right now uh, can be laid at the feet of Nicole Kidman <laughs> and Hugh Grant. Um, 
On the other hand, what's weird about that is that people say that they want to talk to me about the book and what they really want to talk about is the TV show. You know, how did you get the idea to have the lawyer say this? I'm like, there was no lawyer in my novel. Um, so you want to ask David E. Kelly about that. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to do any of it. I've now, I was telling, I had a, a, a phone call this morning with the publicist for the new book. And, and I said, you know, I've never been on a book tour. And she said, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I've never been on a book tour. I've, I've arranged my own readings in places and slept on my friends' couches. But the idea <laughs> used to drive me crazy when people would say, well, I'm on my tour that week. I'm like, you're going on a book tour? Nobody's ever sent me on a book tour. So I, I'm, I'm very thrilled that anybody wants me to do anything. Okay, so um, for the last five or six years, I've run this thing called Book the Writer. Um, which until the pandemic uh, involved about groups of about 20 readers meeting with an author in an apartment in New York. We've been online since last fall and that's actually turned out to be a really, really cool thing. I mean, we have people joining us now from literally all over the world, which is amazing. But we, um, we have, you know, new books or books published within the last year. Um, and we discuss them with their authors over Zoom, and it's just, it can be a very meaningful and beautiful thing. And uh, I've always loved bringing authors and readers together, and it, it's a great thing to see, you know, people say, your book changed my life, or I've been reading you since I was a kid, or, you know, and the conversations get very um, deep as well. It's so far beyond what you would get at a reading not only because, uh, you know, in our group, everybody's read the book. Uh, there's no, can't wait to read your book. It sounds great. There's no, where do you get your ideas? Um, you know, we've all read the book and it's a very deep discussion, but it, there's an intimacy there, which is really nice. We make sure that we all uh, introduce ourselves at the beginning and that really establishes that kind of um, temperature. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing. I mean, I think that the online thing has bizarrely been so successful that I might try to keep an online element when we are, please God, back in uh, real rooms in the fall. Yeah. So um, anyway, it's called Book the Writer, and uh, that's the name of the website. And we um, the registration is all over on Eventbrite. So we'd love to have any of your readers who are interested join us for a book break. It's wonderful. Any plans to expand other cities when things go back to normal? Bizarrely, um, sorry about that ding. It's a message. Um, bizarrely, when I started Book the Writer, I bought up the the web domains for Book the Writer Chicago and Book the Writer San Francisco. It didn't work. The first incarnation of uh, the project was to send authors to existing book groups. That didn't work, I think, because uh, groups are funny and it's hard for them to agree on things. And I was hearing a lot of, well, I love this idea, but I can't get the rest of my group to agree. So I flipped the idea and basically had people come to us. Um, you know, we set up the book group, we set up the event and the author and the book and people just registered and came, individuals registered and came. As far as other cities, I would love it. Um, it's a question of having enough authors in a place to uh, to make it worthwhile. And they, um, I mean, I, I was keeping lists of authors in other cities, but I figured I had to make New York work first before I expanded. But while we're online, anybody can be anywhere and still join us. So. That's, that's nice. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe a fun way to kind of wrap this up would be, um, and this I think ties into the plot a little bit. Uh, I would love to know, given all of the the instability of not only the world but the publishing industry, and and you know most recently we're we're having acquisitions made between major traditional publishers. What's the future look like for the industry from your perspective? You know what's so interesting about publishing is it's been dying, according to popular opinion, since it began. I don't think there's ever been a time in history when people didn't say publishing is dying, publishing is dying. And when I worked in publishing, I worked at Ferrer, Strauss and Giroux for one year in the eighties and people were starting to talk about eBooks and how this eBook thing was gonna work. And I, I mean, at that time, nobody took it seriously. Um, despite the fact that publishing has apparently been dying, it. it it's still with us, you know, it's changed a lot. I mean, I know there's, there've been a lot of uh, um, 
you know, blendings and one big publisher consumes the other one. And now used to be the big six. Now apparently there's a big five. Um, uh, one of the great luxuries of my current situation is that I don't have to pay that much attention to it. And I don't. Um, I mean, I listened to a couple of episodes of your podcast. I probably learned more from your podcast <laughs> than I have, uh, you know, from talking to my friends for the last 25 years. But um, I, I have been told that the pandemic has actually uh, been a good time for publishing, that uh, book sales are doing just fine. And even a lot of the independent bookstores have made it through with the help and support and cooperation of readers who have supported them. I mean, I, I just bought a book from Shakespeare and Company in Paris because I saw a post that, um, that they were in trouble. So I, you know, I think there are a lot of people like, like that who are trying to help out where they can. All right. That is the, the writer, um, now known as just Gene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised JD didn't pass that one over to me to introduce her. Yeah. Here, oh, here, man, that, that would have been, yeah, here you go, newbie. <laughs> yeah. Earn your stripes. Uh, yeah. Well, what great, great writer, great conversation. Uh, Zach, let's start with you. Um, what was something you heard there that uh, you, you thought was cool or something you wanted to talk about today? I think my favorite thing that she said in the interview, uh, I, I love when she said, um, that she, when she talked about writer's block, <laughs> I know that's something Jay that you and I talk about a lot. And, uh, you know, she said in the book she was writing, uh, you know, she's like, I refuse to even write writer's block in there. Cause I don't believe in it. Cause you're either writing or you're not writing. I thought that was such a great quote because I do think that, um, writer's block is definitely a form of resistance. And, uh, and, and so I, I really love that cause I don't think enough people come out and say that. So like I, I fist pumped when I heard her say that, I was like, <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things that people, you know, like there's plenty of times where I, I get up and I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to write about next. Um, but if I leave my desk at that point, like that, you know, anxiety and, and nagging feeling like that doesn't go away. And I typically don't resolve the problem un until I sit down at my keyboard again and then just give it a shot. And, you know, I may write, you know, 10 paragraphs that I, you know, quickly delete and move on and move on. But, you know, I, I will stumble into the, the right, you know, whatever comes next as long as I try. Um, but I've, I've gone weekends, you know, before I've gone, you know, weeks, you know, at my points where I, I, I I don't want to use the term writer's block because like, like she said, I don't think that exists, but I, I think I basically pulled the trigger on, on hitting pause. Um, and that it creates anxiety to the point where, you know, you almost feel like you can't move on, but then you sit down and all of a sudden, you know, 10, 10 minutes later, you're done and you're past it. So it's, it's just, it's so much easier just to work through it. It is. Yeah. It's such a mental struggle. I had to, so many times I'll sit down and I feel like I can't do it or I don't want to do it. And I just start typing and you get five or 10 words in and it's like, it just goes away. It's just, but but you're right. Like to your point, JD. If you if you at that point, if you choose not to sit down and put your fingers on the keyboard, then it just eats at you. So you're better off just like forcing yourself to get the first sentence written or the first word written, and then it'll just kind of flow from there. Yeah. Um, what was the book that she held up? She held up a book, and like we. Didn't I can't video, remember. So. I know. I, oh. I was thinking. Of, I re-listened <laughs> to it today before uh, to the interview before we were recording, and I couldn't remember the the, the name of the the book that she held up. Huh. All right, well, we well, were, we're curious, to... so that's the yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to shoot her an email and just ask because that's gonna drive me nuts not not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> that open loop's gonna drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah, but the the plot sounds like a fascinating idea too. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to reading that one. Yeah, I, I'm glad she didn't spoil it because I, I really I I'm intrigued by that because it almost sounds I'm sure it is. It sounds like a cautionary tale, you know, like. Wow, this is the perfect setup for a writer. You know, someone comes up with this great idea and then passes away, and you have the idea, and it, it just seems too easy. You know, like it, it, it's <laughs> it's definitely one of those like, yeah, I, I could see that going off the tracks in a hurry and just getting you know worse and worse as as things went on. I can guarantee it's happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, multiple times. Like I, I've ghostwritten novels for for authors that have passed away, where the family finds you know the beginning of something in their desk drawer on their computer, and and I, you know, I've, I've been kind of the go to guy to to continue that. Um, I've done that several times in the past, and like I, I know there's people out there that that do that. You know, when it, 
you know, you know well, well-known author or not well-known, whatever it might be that, you know, the family digs through, you know, if you've ever had anybody pass away, you know, my mom um, has an antique store, you know, she, she's constantly buying estates where she'll just bid on literally everything within somebody's house, you know, because the, the kids don't want to deal with it. Um, and then her, her company comes in and clears it out. You know, like there's no telling what'll be found in, in something like that. So I'm sure people have stumbled across, you know, even completed manuscripts in the past, you know, that, that were never published, you know, something that somebody printed out, they wrote it back, you know, 20, 30 years ago and put it in a box somewhere in a closet shelf and forgot about it. And, you know, somebody came through and found it and God, just imagine how tempting that is to, to take those words and just kind of run with it. Yeah. See, to me, it's funny because I, I have more, I, I'll never be able to write every idea I have. So the last thing I want is people give me ideas. <laughs> so I look at it from that perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's definitely an intriguing concept for a novel. Like, I, and it sounded very, very, very intriguing. Well, there's plenty of people out there that, that would love to be a writer, but they're not necessarily a writer. So you drop something like that in their, their lap and give them that opportunity. I, I can see them going forward with it for sure. What do you guys think of Book the Writer? I, I love that as well. I mean, the fact that she's in New York, I think it makes it a lot easier. There's a lot of writers, obviously, in New York, um, so they're able to get together. But she's, um, I, I jumped on the website, and they're, they're doing this you know, nationally um, through Eventbrite and, and online now, thanks to Zoom. Um, which is which is very interesting. So I'm going to try and get in on some of those. Um, unfortunately, those kind of things all seem to happen around the same time that I have to give like my daughter her bath at night or put her, put her to bed or something. So I, I need to work around the toddler schedule. But um, I, I would love to participate in some of those. Yeah, I thought it was. A, it's a really cool concept and something I hadn't seen before. And uh, you know, it's cool how she's been able to adapt it to Zoom. And I think once things you know kind of settle and she's able to you know, have those groups meet in person stuff again and, and be able to book those types of things and hopefully can expand to other places. I think that's a really cool idea and definitely something I'd be interested in getting involved in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be the kind of thing too when, you know, things start opening back up uh, globally. I think people are really going to be craving those types of experiences in real life. So I think it's uh, it's good that she's already sort of planted that seed and has the infrastructure in place and then can kind of open open it back up and uh, and i would imagine it'll be you know she'll end up going in more places than just new york um in real life so that, that that's pretty cool yes sir all right so next week we have uh jd do you know or do you want me Tr to tell Trumbull you uh, cj box right oh uh, yes yes i wasn't sure if i told you or not <laughs> Yeah, you know CJ, right? He's on the board with you. Yeah, he's on the ITW board with me. I, I haven't actually spoken to him personally, um, but he's he's weighed in on a couple of our, our board conversations. Um, and he's you know obviously got a fantastic book uh, catalog behind him. Um, number one New York Times bestseller. Uh, he's been around for a while uh, with his was you know I, I'm not sure if he's got one series or, or several different ones. I know Joe Pickett is his his main. That's his flagship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that should be a, a, a great conversation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have to we have to play the Writers Inc. Uh, drinking game. Um, I'll give you guys a little teaser. Uh, Stephen King tweeted uh, about CJ recently. So uh, I'm going to ask him about that in the interview. Nice. OK. Yeah. So take right a on. shot. Stephen King. Every time we say Stephen King, you have to take a shot. That <laughs> that are construction noise. We haven't had any construction noise in a long time. No, I've I've got one here right now. He's he's working on um, it, it's all mill work now, which is fine tuning stuff. Um, we just I just saw a bathtub going upstairs, which is always good. Uh, but they're they're nice and quiet today, which is awesome. Excellent. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.